We are so very glad that you're here, and I would like you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. A couple of months ago, we started a series on the life of a young man by the name of Joseph and his family. And for now, these last eight weeks, we've been going through that series, asking and trying to answer eight crucial questions that each person must deal with in their life. And these are fundamental questions that each of us have to answer sooner or later, and some of them we'll face over and over again. And some of those questions we've looked at have included questions like, do you know why you were born? Do you know who you are? Are you willing to wait for God? That was always a big one for me. God, I want it, and I want it right now. Questions like, how big is your God? Are you ready to face your past? We talked about, do you want to be set free, and are you satisfied with God? And today, as we wrap this series up, I want to ask you the question, can you trust God with the details of your life? The things that happen that sometimes we weren't counting on coming, sometimes the unexpected, the things that change us on a turn of a dime in a moment of time, can you trust God with those things? And as we've journeyed through this story of Joseph, we found that the hero of Genesis chapter 37 to chapter 50 is not Joseph. But the hero is, in fact, God, how God shows up and God intervenes and God works in miraculous ways. And maybe Joseph's life shows us in a more profound way than any other story in all of the Bible, as we look at it, that is the truth of what's written on the front cover of your bulletin. If you would look at that with me, notice what Romans eight twenty eight says. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And in many ways, Joseph's life story is an illustration of that verse for us from the New Testament. Deep in our hearts, we know that Romans 8.28 is true to us. It's real to us. We've memorized it. We've used it. We've claimed it in times of difficulty. And all things work together for good, right? But then we ask, how can we see the good in some things that happen? I mean, consider the following. A baby is born with serious birth defects without a brainstorm, brainstem, I'm sorry. And the doctor tells the family, there's nothing we can do. Just go home and don't come back. In a matter of weeks, that baby dies. In the Central African Republic not long ago, roving gangs of Muslims with machetes and guns have killed hundreds of fleeing Christians out of the villages. And one man said, they're slaughtering us like chickens. In another case, feeling the call of God on their lives to do international mission work, a young missionary and his wife go to Benghazi in Libya to be able to work with international students that were there. And during the time of teaching them on one semester, he sends his wife and children back to the States so he can stay through the midterms with the students. One morning, he's out jogging, preparing to go to school, and all of a sudden, a black vehicle pulls up and starts shooting. They drive away, leaving his dead body of a 33-year-old young missionary. Another case, a young man with a heart for God and wanting to minister and feeling God's call on his ministry begins seminary, dreaming of the day, as many young preachers do, when he can serve the Lord in full-time ministry. Three months before his graduation, his wife announces that she's leaving him. She said, I don't want to be a pastor's wife. She divorces him and walks out of his life. A police officer stops a man known to be a drug dealer in a major city in our country. 
It happens on a busy downtown street corner in the middle of the day where a lot of people are watching this unfolding drama. Somehow the drug dealer gets a hold of the policeman's revolver and someone's yelling out to the drug dealer, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. And he did, and he shot him right in the face at point-blank range. Or how about the youth group from Colonial Hills Baptist Church in Indianapolis, Indiana, when they'd gone to summer youth camp and they'd come back home and they were only one mile away from the church. The youth pastor had just texted to the families waiting. We're about one mile away getting ready to get off the freeway. And as they got off the freeway, the bus hit an abutment and flipped and turned and dozens of students were injured and the youth pastor and his wife and their unborn baby were called into eternity along with one of his adult counselors, a mother of five children. These stories are all true, and I know that you could add many more to the list. I even thought had I had time to do it and could get permission from families, I could go around and almost duplicate these stories from real tales that happen within our own congregation. We know that all things work together for good, but sometimes we just ask the Lord the question, why, Lord? Why do we have to go through these things? We wonder if, if this tragedy can be true. Can it ever get good from this terrible thing that happens? And honestly, no matter how many sermons we hear, no matter how many books we read, podcasts we connect to on, on this topic, the question returns again and again. Why did this happen? Lord, why didn't you answer our prayers? Why didn't the marriage get saved? Why wasn't the child's health restored? Why weren't the finances provided? And when we see the pain of a fallen world, sometimes if you'll be honest, you know there's God, but you wonder, God, where are you right now? I need you right now. Be an on-time God in this situation. And over the centuries, I want you to know that the greatest minds who have ever lived have wrestled with these same questions, wondering why, why me, why now, why this, and still questions hang in the air. We wonder why things happen the way they do. Why a teacher in Libya is killed, why a church bus flips over and causes such tragedy, why the baby was born with such disabilities. Why do these things happen? Why do they happen to good people and decent people? Why do they happen to people who love the Lord? And I want to tell you that this is not just a Christian problem. This is a problem that stems for all of us from living in a sin-stained world, from living on a fallen planet. And the truth is, the Bible gives us all kinds of different answers for why these things can happen and why we experience them and go through them. We get one kind of answer from Genesis. We get another kind of answer from Job. Another kind of answer from the book of Psalms. And of course, the wisdom literature, we get another kind of answer from Solomon and Ecclesiastes. We yet get another kind of answer from Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And if you follow over all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, you find yet another answer dealing with triumph at the end of all of this. And I need you to know that these different answers are not contradictory answers, but the problem is so vast, the Bible affords us different perspectives of going through the same thing at different times in our lives. And so this morning, to wrap this series up, I want to share something with you and share it with me as well that will help us at least have perspective that will allow us to, if there's going to be any basis for understanding at all, it'll be what I'm talking about today. And to understand it and grasp anything at all, I want you to understand something called the doctrine of the providence of God. 
And on the back of your worship guide, I just give you three things that we're going to talk about, a definition, an illustration, and an application of this great doctrine. And to start with, let me tell you what providence means. It's a word that we don't use every single day. So if you'd write down at the top, providence defined. It's an English word, and in English word, it has two parts. It's pro and video. Pro meaning before and video to see. Putting together literally means to see before. And though the word itself is not found in your Bible, most modern translations at least don't use it, but the concept is certainly biblical. Someone, I don't know who it was, that I came across came up with a great definition in layperson's terms in the vernacular that we would understand of what the providence of God is all about. I have it on your outline. You don't even have to write it down. It simply says, notice on the screen, God's gracious oversight of the universe. Would you say that with me? God's gracious oversight of the universe. And each and every word is very important. God's providence is one aspect of his grace. Oversight means that he is directly involved in the affairs of this world. The word universe means that God not only knows the big picture, but he knows the minutia. He knows the minute details that we go through, the tiniest things that we face. And here's some things you won't have time to write them down, but details of what God's providence is talking about. It simply means that he upholds all things. He does it all. He's got the whole world in his hands. He governs all things. He directs everything, and it's appointed in. He does it all the time, now listen to this, and in every circumstance. And then also, he does it always for his glory. Everything that God does that is good is always done for the glory of God. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And the doctrine of the providence of God teaches us several important truths. First of all, God cares about the tiniest details of your life. You know, when it's someone else, you think it's minor, and when it's you, it's major. But I want you to know that God majors in the minors. God is concerned about your bills. God does care about your children. God does want to know that you can see his hand in everything that you're going through. In fact, with God, there is no big or small. The Bible tells us he knows when a sparrow falls. He knows the hairs on your head. For Pastor Wayne, that's not a hard task. He keeps track of the stars in the skies and the rivers that flow to the oceans. He sets the day of your birth. He knows the day of your death. He ordains everything that comes to pass in between. And the second thing that I want you to know, he uses everything and wastes nothing. Talk about efficient. We serve such an efficient God. Someone says there are no accidents with God, only incidents with God. You ought to write that down. No accidents with God, only incidents. And this includes what seems to us to be senseless tragedies. And the next thing I want you to know is that God's ultimate purpose is to shape his children into his image of Jesus Christ. We just quoted Romans 8, 28, for we know that all things work together for those that love God. But Romans 8, 29 reminds us that the purpose of knowing that those things work together is that we're conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And the hard truth for you this morning is this. Listen up, bucko. Is that oftentimes God will use difficult and tragic times in our lives to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. To accomplish that purpose. 
And there are many verses in the Bible that teach these truths, including, notice on the screen, Acts 17, 28, that says, In him we live and move and have our being. Or Colossians 1, 17, In him all things are held together. Or Hebrews 1, 3, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or Proverbs 16, 9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Or perhaps one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, Psalm 115.3, that says, Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. When, I th- when you think of the providence of God, I want you to think of a term that our predecessor preachers and great teachers from the time of the Reformation and the time of the great preaching in the 1700s and 1800s would use. They called the providence of God the, invis- the invisible hand that guides us. In fact, in the last 50 years, there have been a couple books written on the providence of God that use that very title, The Invisible Hand of God. And with that definition as a background, where would we go in the Bible to find an example of the providence of God? Where, oh, where could we find it, not only in a moment, but over a period of years to see that God's there? I know one. How about the life of Joseph? How about beginning in Genesis chapter 37 with a 17-year-old young man extending into his mid-40s by the time we get to chapter 50 or his early, late 30s and around the age of 40. The second thing that I want you to see is not only the definition of providence, but I want you to see providence illustrated. And though it is a review and an overview of what we've studied these last seven weeks, I want you to see the illustration of God's invisible hand in the life of young Joseph. It goes something like this. Because Joseph was the favored son of his father Jacob, who had 12 sons and one daughter, he was the object of envy by his brothers. They hated him more because the report he gave his father about them, and that set up a wall between them. They hated him even more when father gave Joseph that coat of many collars that no one else had. And they really couldn't stand the story that Joseph told about having dreams where one, he and his brother, the brothers would have to bow down before him and even his mother and father would bow down. They hated him. And that hate turned to envy and their envy turned to conspiracy and that conspiracy turned to attempted murder. Finally, in disgust, they threw him in a pit when he came to check on them out in the wilderness. And while he is screaming and yelling for help in that hole, one of the most callous things happened in the Bible, and that is that all ten brothers are sitting out there laughing at Joseph while they're eating a meal. And he's begging for his life. The day came where the conspirators decided, rather than kill him, to sell him to the Midianites, the slave traders who happened to be passing by. And and they had to explain it to dad, so they took his coat, splashed it with blood, the coat of many collars that was so special to him, in order to put forth the ruse that he had been killed by a wild animal. And they took that back to dad. They took it back to Jacob, who believed the lie and sorrowfully concluded that Joseph was dead. And that continues for 20 years. Every time they sat at the table and had family memory night, and Jacob would talk about how much he missed Joseph, 10 of the 11 brothers around that table knew what they had done with Joseph, but held the lie, the secret, the family secret for 20 years. Meanwhile, Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Midianites. There he was sold by the Midianites to people in Egypt, this time to Potiphar, 
who was the head of Pharaoh's security force. Genesis 39 tells us that everywhere Joseph went, he found favor. It begins in Potiphar's house because Potiphar had such confidence in him. The Lord was with Joseph and the Lord was blessing him. Eventually, Potiphar put Joseph in charge of his entire household. And you need to know something. That's a high honor. Every once in a while, you'll hear someone say, if you knew where I started from, you wouldn't believe how God has blessed me. Well, Joseph could say, you wouldn't believe that I was a Hebrew and that I'm a Hebrew slave. And now I'm overseeing all of Potiphar's house. And because he was competent, he was confident. And, and not me saying this, I bet he was ugly. But the Bible says he was good looking. He had all these attributes going for him. And because of that, Potiphar's wife, this single married woman, approached him about having a sexual affair. Joseph refused her, pointing out the fact he could not do that because of Potiphar. He would not sin against God. And the woman persisted to the, to the point that one day, when everyone else was gone, you remember, she tried to pull him down on her bed. And Joseph flees the scene. He left his coat behind. And humiliated by his refusal, she accused him of rape. When Potiphar came home that evening, and you know and I know it was a false charge, but Potiphar believed his wife and had Joseph thrown in prison. And in prison, now he's lost what little bit of upstep he had. It looks like he's stuck in Folsom prison. And in, in the prison, he gained the confidence of the inmates and the leaders. And all of a sudden, he finds himself being in charge again and working in the prison in an amazing way. And this happened because the Lord was with him. And the Lord blessed him. Whatever situation he was in, wherever you're at, whether it's communist China or capitalistic America, if you're a child of God, God's hand is still upon you. And here Joseph is in this prison. And there were two people that were thrown in that prison eventually with him that worked for Pharaoh. One was a cupbearer and the other was a baker. And Joseph befriended them. One night, on the same night, believe it or not, they both had individual dreams that they could not interpret. But you remember, Joseph was able to interpret those dreams with the help of the Lord. And the dreams came about just as Joseph predicted. The, ba the, the butler was... What, I'm sorry, the butler was released, the cupbearer was released, but the baker was hung. And Joseph asked these guys, to, the, the, asked him to remember him after he was out, but he didn't do it. Two years passed by. He's stuck in the prison. And then one night, Pharaoh, the head of the whole nation, the largest civilization at that time in the world, had a dream, not just a normal dream that you would associate with staying up too late at night or eating something before you go to sleep. But it was a dream that really troubled him. He, he didn't have peace about it. He couldn't interpret it, and no one else could. And that's when the cupbearer remembered Joseph. And he said, Pharaoh, there was a man that was able to interpret dreams in prison, and naturally Pharaoh ordered that Joseph would be brought before him. And Joseph correctly interpreted the dreams for Pharaoh, and he was immediately rewarded by that. Pharaoh made him prime minister over Egypt. Not bad for a Hebrew slave who had been sold by his brothers and left for dead. And just as Joseph predicted in the dream, a famine would come. And eventually that famine would settle in around Egypt. But it not only affected Egypt, it affected the perimeter it affected the countries like Canaan and all around where the other people were. 
Jacob needed food just like the people in Egypt did. So he told his sons to go down to Egypt and buy some grain. They go and in the process they meet Joseph. Only they don't know it's Joseph. You look one way at 17 and you look another way at 40. All these years had gone by. That happens twice where they come to see him and don't know who he is. And then Joseph reveals his true identity to him. They're shocked. They're scared because they betrayed him. And now they realize he's in a position to get even with them. But Joseph doesn't do it. In fact, some of the most amazing words after going through all that he had gone through are the words that we find in Genesis chapter 45, verses 5 through 8. Notice on the screen. Joseph says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. You talk about perspective. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will neither be plowing or harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. But that's not the end of the story. The brothers, knowing who Joseph is at this point, go back to their father and try to convince Jacob that Joseph is still alive. He he can't believe it, but eventually they talk him into coming down to Egypt with them. He makes the trip, and he's reunited with his son that he had given up for dead 20 years or so before that. And then he meets Pharaoh, the leader of all the land, who offers to let Joseph's family settle down in Egypt for as long as they like. And they settle there in the land of Goshen, and they live there in peace for many years. Finally, the father, Jacob, dies at the age of 147. And now it's just Joseph and his brothers. And because dad is gone, the brothers, I think rightfully so, begin to fear that now that dad is gone, Joseph's going to extract his pound of flesh. He's going to get revenge on us. So they tell Joseph, oh, by the way, dad told us before he died to tell you to treat us kindly. I think it was another dirty dog lie. I don't think daddy said anything like that before he died. But I want you to listen to Joseph's response. These are the words of a man who believes in the providence. Remember pro video, seeing ahead, who believed in the providence of God. In verse 19 of Genesis chapter 50. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I mean, can I just ask you a question? How could Joseph talk like that? After everything that he had been through? And the answer is really simple if you'll allow your mind to just get in that same plane. And it is simply this. Joseph saw God in every situation and in everywhere and in every day. Do you see God in every situation, every day, what you're going through? If we can just adapt the philosophy of Joseph and say, God is here. The choir sings that song. He is here. He is present on the good days and the bad days, the high days and the low days, the healthy days and the ill days. When you're facing graduation and when you're facing graduation, God is there in all of those days and all of those times. And he saw God everywhere. 
Even notice how he said it. You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. And here's the amazing thing about that verse. Both sides are true. I, I guarantee the brothers meant it for evil. They were finished with Joe. They wanted him gone. But I also guarantee you that God meant it for good. That God would take evil and turn it and use it for the benefit of so many others. And so Joseph saw this invisible hand of God at work in his life. And he understood that behind his conniving brothers stood the Lord who had orchestrated the entire affair. Doesn't justify what they did. But he got him there in order to be at the right place at the right moment in order to save his whole family. And then the last thing that I want you to see in this story of Joseph is not only the definition, definition and the illustration, but I want you to see how providence is applied, perhaps in your life and mine. Joseph is saying, listen, though your motives were bad, God's motives were good. And though it took years for God's purpose to be made known. Sometimes we get frustrated on Wednesday when we can't understand what happened on Monday. We say, God, why don't you explain this? Why are we going through this difficult time? It took years for it to be clear. But in the end, Joseph saw the hand of God behind everything that had happened to him. Think about the implications of this statement. Joseph believed that at the right moment, his brothers threw him down in that cistern. At just the right moment, he believed the Midianites came along. Another tribe could have taken him somewhere else. At just the right moment when they were being sold as slaves, Potiphar stepped up and said, I'll take that young stud right there and took him into his home. At just the right moment, Pharaoh's wife falsely accused him. At just the right moment, Joseph was thrown into prison. At just the right moment, he met the baker and the cupbearer in prison. At just the right moment, the cupbearer remembered Joseph, though it was two years. And Joseph said, why aren't you remembering me? If he'd have remembered him sooner, it may not have worked out. But at the right moment, he remembered Joseph. At just the right moment, Pharaoh called Joseph to come. At just the right moment, Joseph was promoted to be the prime minister over all of Egypt. At just the right moment, Jacob sent his sons down to Egypt. At just the right moment, the brothers met Joseph. At just the right moment, Jacob's family then moved down to Egypt. At just the right moment, Pharaoh offers them the best property in Egypt in the land of Goshen. And at just the right moment, they settled there and prospered. That all happened just at the right moment and in just the right way so the right people would be in the right place. So that in the end, everything would come out the way God had ordained it to from the very beginning. And here's something that will let you have a headache tonight for your theological perspective. In all of this, God never violated anyone's free will. And yet behind the scene, God was orchestrating the entire event. And he's doing that in your life, and he does that in my life today. That's the providence of God in action Charles Spurgeon preached on this one time. The little at the right time that I just did for you, it took him 40 minutes to do it. So you should thank God that I didn't use his sermon. <laughs> but in the preaching about being just at the right time and all of that, he pointed out that everything in Joseph's life had to happen in a particular way. He pointed out the chain of circumstances that led Joseph from the pit to the palace at just the right time. And then he concluded that God is to be seen in the small things, the things that you, you could just take for granted. 
I tell young preachers when I go speak occasionally, it's very rarely that I do it anymore, but when I did, I would tell them, be very careful about the people that God introduces you to when you first go to an area of ministry because the first five people I met when I came to Westerville are still very involved in my life today, 43 years later. How God can use the small things that happen in our life. And Spurgeon talked about the minutia of providence and the small things being so important. And if we look with the eyes of faith, we can see God's fingerprint everywhere. And I would challenge you to start looking for God's fingerprint wherever you're at. Not rejoicing in the difficult or the bad or your sin when you fall, but understanding that God has not forsaken you. God has not left you, and God will in the end get good from this. I began this sermon by saying that the final question from Joseph's life is, can you trust God with the details of your life? That's your title. Can you trust God with the details of your life? But honestly, that's not the right question. We need to change one word if you'll scratch it out at the top. Take the word can you, scratch it out, and put in the word will you. Will you trust God with the details of your life? You can. The question is, will you and everything that's going, going on And here's another way to put it. You have to decide either he runs the universe or you do. A lot of people try to run the universe, but I've never heard a story of how it's worked out very well for them. You can ask the people like Adolf Hitler. You can ask the people where the Bible says, what does it profit a man if he gained the entire world and yet lose his own soul? Or you can bow before the Lord and surrender. Surrender all to him. Lord, you have my mind. You have my resources. You have my life. You are the invisible hand that guides and you see everything. And I want to run with you, Lord, and not against you. I trust you with every detail of my life. Now, remember, Jacob is dead. The father is dead. Notice on the screen in verse 14 what it says. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong things we did to him? The lingering problem of guilt that's there. The guilt that's creeping into the brothers. Notice very carefully in verse 16, they didn't go ask Joseph this. They were even so afraid of him, they didn't want to ask him. It says, so they sent word to him. The King James Version says they sent a messenger to him to ask him, are we going to be okay? Are you going to kill us? In verse 16, notice, it says, So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. That is a great prayer, but it should have been prayed to God and not Joseph. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. And he wept because they didn't get it. They didn't understand. You know, the Bible tells us that when Lazarus died in the New Testament, that Jesus wept. But I believe there are other examples of the burdened heart of Jesus Christ as he's reached out throughout the centuries and throughout the last decades and throughout the last days of your life even, and perhaps even today, where he wants you to know, I'm not holding anything against you. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see fear in those brothers. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. 
Maybe you're here today and you have the lingering problem of guilt as these brothers did. They'd done something bad in the past and they couldn't let it go. Joseph had already welcomed them. He had already hugged their necks. You remember we talked about it last time in chapter 45. He cried on the necks of every one of them, told them that he loved them. But they came to a point in their walk where they doubted that forgiveness. Have you come to a point where you doubt the forgiveness of God and what he's forgiven you for in your past? Maybe I'm speaking to someone this morning. You've come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've asked for the forgiveness of your sins. You came to him at some point realizing your need for salvation. Your sins and the guilt of your sins have plagued you and filled you with guilt. It's so much on you. You came to Christ and he forgave you for that, but you have a hard time, even though he forgave you, of forgiving yourself. And sometimes people want to throw themselves back in their previous life and and beat themselves and say, I'm not worthy to be forgiven. I'm not worthy to be a Christian. Let me tell you something this morning. Maybe the most important thing that I will say, if you've come to the Lord Jesus Christ and asked him to forgive you of your sins, praise God, he has freely forgiven you of your sins and will never, the Bible says, bring your sins up against you again. And if they do come up against you, it's Satan trying to attack the peace that you have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you think it's time, maybe today, that you forgive yourself for the things in the past? You can't change yesterday. This is the only day that we can walk in the light and glorify God and reach out to the future. Joseph weeps about their lingering problem of guilt, but then he talks about the lasting purpose of God. Notice in verse 19, it says, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Would you say that to yourself? Don't be afraid. And he says, Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, sure enough. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. Everybody's concerned about their children. And he reassured them, the Bible says, and spoke kindly to them. Joseph had the truth of Romans 8, 28 in his heart, though it had never been written. He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God has a lasting purpose. God was involved in every bit of it. If you have not memorized it, I believe every Christian should memorize Romans 8, 28. It's my go-to verse. It's my default verse. When things happen in my life and my family that I can't comprehend, I just go to that verse like a prescription medicine. For we know, we don't think, we don't hope, but we know that all things, not some things, not yesterday's things, but all things work together for good. And be grateful, it says, work together for good because all things are not good. Cancer is not good. Divorce is not good. Sin is not good. But for those that love God, all things work together for good to them that love him, to them who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has a lasting purpose in your life and that he's concerned about the minutia of Frank Carl and Bill Jones and Susie or Johnny or whoever you are here today? He's concerned very much about those. The problem for me is, and maybe the problem for you is, we can't see beyond our nose. Because when it hits us and it hurts us, that's all we can think about. Think about last year, December, the problems you were facing and challenging. And you were crying out, oh, God, it's never been this bad. God, how will I ever recover from this? That was 12 months ago. 
And now you have a whole new set of challenges. You go, God, I'll never survive this. And you know why you can say that today? Because he delivered you from yesterday. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. And that's why he says in Jeremiah 33, 3, Call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. He wants us to reach out to him. He has a purpose far beyond what our eyes are able to see. God put Joseph exactly where he needed to be. And when you and I get to glory, we're going to see our whole life in perspective. And what? Duh. Now I see God. I see what you were doing in all of that. We're going to see the mosaic of how he fit the pieces of our lives together. But you may never know that until you get to heaven. Job lost his children. He lost his wealth. He lost everything. And he lived and died without ever knowing that Satan had approached God the Father and said, I want to attack Job. But he was faithful in every bit of that. And when we get to heaven, we're going to look back over the pathway and see through all the twists and the turns and the seeming detours that came our way. But until that day comes and, and the sunlight of God's presence fills our eyes where we know there will be no more sorrow or sadness or death or parting or, or, or leaving behind again, it's good enough for us to live and, and just say, Lord, I trust you. There, there's a couple old hymns that were written to help us understand that. One you may not have heard of and one you may have. There was a Baptist preacher in 1931 that had gone through a whole lot of trouble. And he wrote a song called, He Maketh No Mistake. And then the old gospel hymn says, We'll understand it better by and by. Trust me, we can because of the goodness of God and the providence of God. And stay tuned, there's more to come. You just have to wait till you get to heaven to understand it all.